The governor of California is here, and boy, do we have a lot of questions. The lead starts right now. He's one of the main Democrats, floated perhaps more than anyone else as an alternative to Joe Biden. Gavin Newsom here on the lead. Is he all in on President Biden's reelection bid? How is he trying to fix the problems in his state, such as illegal immigration and skyrocketing homeless numbers? We'll ask him about it all. Plus, two years since Russia invaded Ukraine, are Putin's forces closer to threatening a NATO country in European territory? The ambassador of a key NATO ally is here. And we are just minutes away from a major update on that moon mission and soon possibly the first pictures from the lunar surface. Welcome to the Leon Jake Tapper. We start today in our 2024 lead. We're just one day out from the next crucial contest in the presidential race, the South Carolina Republican primary. Right now, Polling shows Donald Trump outpacing Nikki Haley in her home state, Trump hovering around 60% of the vote compared to just 30% for Haley, a former governor of South Carolina. But if tomorrow's results come in anywhere near the polling numbers, though tomorrow's loss could be devastating for her, she has said she's going to stay in the race. She has far outspent Trump in the Palmetto state, spending $16 million to Trump's $1 million. She's showing no signs of giving up. Haley spent her last full day on the campaign trail slamming her Republican opponent, accusing him of siding with Putin, who she says is both a dictator who kills his political opponents and a tyrant who arrests American journalists. Fact check, true. We start our coverage today with CNN's Kylie Atwood covering the Nikki Haley campaign from Monk's Corner, South Carolina, as well as CNN's Kristen Holmes, who's covering the Trump campaign from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Kristen, uh, Mr. Trump is expected to speak tonight at the Black Conservative Federation Honors Gala in Columbia, South Carolina. Today, the Biden campaign put out a blistering statement calling Trump the proud poster boy for modern racism. Is the Trump campaign responding? Jake, they're not, and I don't expect them to, but it really goes to show you that this is, looks more and more like a general election every day with Democrats, with President Joe Biden and his campaign taking these hits directly at Donald Trump, directly at Donald Trump's campaign. I do want to apologize. It's very loud here, so I hope you guys can hear me. Uh, but one thing I want to point out overall is that when I talk to the Trump campaign, when I talk to senior advisors, they do believe it is going to be possible for Donald Trump to pick up African-American voters. They think there are cracks and this Democratic support for Joe Biden, and it is a group that they are going to go after and go after hard. When I speak, spoke to a senior advisor earlier today, he said they want to leave absolutely no votes on the table, and that includes black voters. And Kylie, uh, since the modern primary era began uh, in 1972, no major party nominee has ever lost his or her home state. Uh, Marco Rubio dropped out, for example, before he could lose Florida. Could tomorrow be the beginning of the end for Haley? It certainly could be, Jake. I think, you know, Nikki Haley's campaign has tried to get away from that potential narrative by her outright saying earlier this week that she's not going to drop out on Sunday, essentially, no matter what happens here in South Carolina. But when you look at the fact that she has already lost the three early states in the Republican primary and could potentially lose South Carolina, her home state, uh, tomorrow, voters across the country on Super Tuesday, where the campaign is looking, are clear going to be watching for that. So this could be the end, uh, the beginning of the end for them, um, or she could outperform those polls and things could look different. And, and Kristen, uh, Republicans have been really panicking ever since the Alabama Supreme Court um, ruled against 
IVF, uh, in, in vitro fertilization, uh, saying that uh, embryos are babies and trying to figure out how to deal with it. People wondering uh, Donald Trump's position on it. It's obviously very popular, even among so-called pro-life individuals. IVF is popular. Has Mr. Trump said anything about it? Yeah, I can guarantee you the former president was read those statistics of just how popular IVF is before he commented. He posted on Truth Social supporting IVF, saying this, we want to make it easier for mothers and fathers to have babies, not harder. That includes supporting the availability of fertility treatments of IVF in every state in America. And again, I know we don't have this up there, but afterwards he said, like the overwhelming majority of Americans, including the vast majority of Republicans. So you can see that he had that data in front of him. He had an understanding of where people land on this. Now, this also comes after the NRSC urged its candidates not to support any kind of talk about the government prohibiting IVF in any way. And it comes after the attorney general in Alabama released a statement saying they were not going to use the Supreme Court ruling to essentially persecute or prosecute, excuse me, uh, any of the IVF users or providers. So there is a clear going uh, in, in this certain direction here that Donald Trump got on board with condemning this. I will note, we see Democrats and Joe Biden in particular trying to link this to the overturning of Roe v. Wade directly, which of course Donald Trump was the architect of with his appointment pointing of three Supreme Court justices. That issue is one that Donald Trump has waffled on trying to take credit while still not talking about abortion. But here he took a clear stand saying he supported IVF. And Kylie, Ms. Haley's out today with a, a new ad, uh, an effort to win over any last-minute voters. Tell us about it. Yeah, SFA Fund, which is the main super PAC supporting Nikki Haley, which has put a tremendous number of advertisements on TV here in South Carolina, is out with a new ad telling voters that tomorrow it's an opportunity for them to change the situation when it comes to politics, to get away from the drama. Listen to part of that ad. You fed up with all the politicians? Sick of washed up failures that just won't go away? Had enough of the scandals and the insults? The lawsuits and the drama? Tired of the rage filled rants and tweets? Ready to make it all go away? Well, you can. On February 24th, vote to end the chaos. Now, that TV ad also went on to say that. The Democrat, excuse me, the Republican primary tomorrow is open to all voters, all registered voters. That includes Democrats. And I do think it's significant to note that Nikki Haley at her event here in Monk's Corner today also reminded folks that anyone who didn't vote in that Democratic primary earlier this month and is a registered voter can vote tomorrow. So we might see some Democrats show up for Nikki Haley tomorrow. The other thing that she is reminding voters is to bring as many folks as they can out to the polls. Obviously, the margins for her are going to matter tomorrow as her campaign isn't really setting specific expectations. But after New Hampshire, she said that her goal here in South Carolina was to do better than she did in New Hampshire, where she came in 11 points behind former President Trump. So she will be relying on potentially Democrats, moderate voters, and a whole host of folks who have moved into the country, it, it moved into the state in the last few years to propel her uh, forward in this primary. Jake. All right, Kristen covering the Trump campaign, Kylie Atwood covering the Haley campaign. Thanks to both of you. CNN's going to go big covering tomorrow's primary in South Carolina. Look for results and analysis right here. Special coverage begins tomorrow at 6 o'clock Eastern on CNN. I will be anchoring that.
Joining me now to discuss is California Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat. He met with President Biden and other governors at the White House today. Governor, thanks so much for joining us. Great really to be with you. It. So South Carolina Republicans are headed to polls tomorrow. <laughs> polls show Donald Trump substantially leading former Governor Nikki Haley. Do you think, I know you want Joe Biden to win, do you think that Haley or Trump would be easier to beat for him? Well, first of all, I think she's one of our better surrogates, so I hope she stays in. I hope she does well tomorrow. All the nasty stuff well she says enough. about Trump. Uh, she's spot on uh, on 99% of it, so I'm enjoying I'm enjoying this primary, and I hope it continues. So I wish her luck. Uh, but look, Trump's the nominee. We all know that. You know that. Everybody out there knows that. And I think the polls are suggestive. She's going to get well up tomorrow, uh, and then she'll make a case, I guess, uh, just to continue in this. But again, I, I have no problem her continuing for as long as she wishes, because I think she's making a good case against Trump. Head-to-head polls suggest that she would clean Biden's clock, yeah. uh, and it's a tougher race. Uh, uh, Trump's, for... Trump's the nominee. Everybody knows Trump's the nominee. So it does, not you're a, not, so There's you... not a state that, with respect, there's no evidence to suggest, there's no polling to suggest, there's nothing to suggest, momentum or otherwise, that she can win any state. Uh, in the Republican primary uh, coming up. So it's just not. It, Donald Trump is the nominee. Uh, everybody tough, knows that. No, I don't mean that to be dismissive. I have respect for the former governor uh, a lot more than the former president, Donald Trump. Uh, but as I said, I, I wish her luck uh, in the context of being out there and making the case that we're making against Donald Trump equally. So you're also making a case for Joe Biden. You're trying to make a case for President Biden. The CNN poll of polls today finds Biden's average approval rating, his average approval rating is just 39%. Voters do not seem to see in President Biden what you see. Yeah, I mean, we got to mind the gap between performance and uh, perception, no doubt about it. When you have the lowest black unemployment, lowest unemployment for Hispanics, lowest unemployment for women in 70 years, uh, one of the most significant jobs records of any president in three-year period in American history, more jobs being created and startups being started in this country, inflation now cooling and economy continuing to boom. 39 plus thousand Dow. I mean, it's extraordinary record. And we just have to make the case. And that's what campaigns are about. We're out there making that case. Well, is he able to make the case the way that you are? We all are making the case. It's but the is he able to party. do it the way you do with the alacrity, the speed, the command? That well, you I was just with him. He's making a case for industrial policy, bringing back American manufacturing jobs and supply chains. He was talking about the CHIPS Act, the Science Act. He was talking about his bipartisan infrastructure bill. He was talking about what he wants to accomplish on the border as effectively or well than any of us. And I just had that privilege and opportunity to see that uh, with governors from both the Republican and the Democratic Party. And of course, Democrats were out there plotting the president. Republicans were sitting there confused uh, that the president actually has a plan and agenda and compromise, which is what we want in the president, willing to compromise with the other party. But Republicans in Congress are refusing to move forward with that bipartisan immigration deal because of one person, Donald Trump. They care more about Trump's success than addressing this fundamental issue. So if you were president, and I know you're not running, et cetera, et cetera, but if you were president, you would sign that compromise into law? Because there are a lot of people on the left who don't like that compromise. Well, I, look, it's the art of the deal. The president was making the case with us just moments ago that he didn't get the dreamers in there, didn't get a lot on the TPS, didn't get a lot of what he wanted, but it's the art of what's possible. And that bottom line is he called their bluff. He called their bluff. They're not interested in governing. It's all entertainment. It's performance. Donald Trump was on the phone lighting up potential supporters of that bipartisan deal, threatening them. That's the state of the Republican Party today. That's, wrong. That's not Ronald Reagan's Republican Party. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. And I think it's an abject shame. And I say that as a border state governor that needs the support that would have been benefited 
from this bipartisan deal. $1.4 billion will go to cities and states. We're starting to shut down some of our migrant centers in the state of California. That's on the Republican Party. That's on Speaker Johnson. That's on Donald Trump. So let's ask about that because you are a border state governor. Immigration, huge topic today at the White House. Sources say uh, the president is considering executive action to severely restrict migrants' ability to seek asylum at the southern border. Uh, to get today, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus called that idea unbelievable and accused Biden of, quote, using immigrant communities as a political pawn. Would you support the executive action? Do you need that kind of relief? Well, none of us us have the details of the executive action, so I'm not going to answer that specifically. But as it relates to addressing the issue of asylum, it needs to be addressed. With all due respect, the asylum system is broken. We've yeah. been saying that consistently. Do the standards How need to be raised? We need, well, incredible fear? Absolutely. I don't think that. I know it. I experience it all the time. Remember, I'm the governor of the border state with the largest port of entry in the Western Hemisphere. We don't need to be educated on this topic. There's no doubt it's being gamed. Everybody knows that. It's how we fix it. I would prefer to fix it in a bipartisan deal, working with credible people on the other side, but they don't exist currently in the Republican Party. So to the extent he asserts himself from an executive prism, I understand why that brings up a controversial frame and stress. That said, at least applaud him for trying to assert himself. Of course, the courts will have more to say on that than any of us. Speaking of courts, uh, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled uh, that frozen embryos are children. Um, they uh, invoked uh, the wrath of a, of a holy God yes, in their decision. Of course. Um, multiple clinics in the state are now pausing their IVF treatments as a result. <laughs> uh, you called the decision sickening. Yeah, um, what are Democrats going to do about it, if anything? Well, we'll continue to be on the offense. We're, we're, we're backed up by the American people. We're backed up post-Dobbs. You just see these Republican parties on the defense on this issue for good reason, because the American people have had it. This extremism manifested the ultimate in extremism on the issue that impacts one out of every six people that in their lifetime have fertility issues. This is profound. And you talk about freedom. Spare me. The Republican Party and this freedom gospel. What about family freedom? What about the right of people? people that want to start a family. And think about this, Jake. You know this. Everybody knows this. You saw the stats. 65,000 births due to rapes since Dobbs in 14 states. Apparently, what the Republican Party is saying is the rapists have more rights to bring those babies to birth than families that are trying desperately to have the privilege you and I have had as fathers and parents. It is a disgrace, and it's a political problem for them, but it's a moral issue. And I found what happened in Alabama disgusting. And by the way, you have an AG in Alabama that also is out there promoting a travel ban that wants to criminalize travel for anyone that seeks an abortion out of state. That's how extreme the state of the Republican Party is. All right, we have more questions for Governor Newsom about the staggering number of people who are homeless in California. The highest homeless numbers in the entire country are in that state. Much more in our conversation coming up. Welcome back to The Lead in the second installment of our new series, Homeless in America. As you probably know, California's homelessness crisis is the worst in the United States. More than 180,000 people are homeless in that state. And according to a recent survey, two-thirds of those homeless Californians say they have a mental health condition. But only 18% of them have received treatment recently. Mental health and how it relates to homelessness is literally on the ballot in California in two weeks. It's called Proposition 1. It would reform the state's Mental Health Services Act and would approve a $6.4 billion bond 
to pay for more housing and mental health care facilities. Counties in California would then be required to spend 60% of that toward housing and funding programs for those with serious mental illness or substance abuse issues. California Governor Gavin Newsom is still with me. Let's talk about Prop 1. Some counties say this would make homelessness worse, uh, that it would be taking away from existing programs or would pit them against each other rather, in, rather than fostering collaboration. What, what do you say to those, those counties? Uh, that's a ridiculous statement. Uh, but you've heard that. You've heard people say that. Yeah, it's here. a ridiculous statement. It falls flat on the facts. $6.38 billion of new investment bonds for 11,150 new locked beds, or excuse me, no longer locked bed, community-based beds, uh, and treatment slots. Billions of dollars that would be dedicated to housing, housing supports, and allow substance abuse to be used to address this critical issue. Uh, I think those arguments are rather stale. And one argument that ultimately I think is the most persuasive is the status quo. It's untenable. It's unacceptable. And we have bipartisan support for this. Uh, we're moving in a direction to take care of our, our vets, moving in a direction to take care of our workforce, and to invest an unprecedented amount of money to invest at scale with accountability mm. for the first time in 50 years in the state of California. So what would this bill do when it comes to treatment for people who need it for addiction or people who need it for mental health issues? Because some advocacy groups say that this would be forcing people into treatment, which is equivalent to mass incarceration. Uh, tell us what the facts well, are. Well, there's, there's a couple of things being conflated. You've got Proposition 1, which is right. our, our, our bond and our reform of the Mental Health Services Act, which is overwhelmingly supported. And then you have reforms that are long overdue, uh, going back to when the reforms began in 1967 when Ronald Reagan led a bipartisan effort, which began the process of deinstitutionalization in the state of California. And by the way, just for historic terms, this is actually interesting, I think, to many people that are listening. 37,000 psychiatric beds in the 60s in the state of California. Today, 5,500. That process of deinstitutionalization occurred in the 60s, Ronald Reagan, then governor, but also extended in the 70s and 80s. And we never made up for the alternative community-based care. Mm -hmm. That said, Proposition 1 addresses that substantially. Beyond that, though, there are people that are service resistant. And we want to reform the Lantern and Petrus Short Act, which allows for conservatorship reform. And we created a new paradigm, a new pathway called care court. Let's talk about care courts because you implemented care courts a few months ago. Yep. Um, a person with a mental health illness is evaluated by a judge and then can receive treatment, including housing and medication. Are you satisfied with the progress you've seen? Some moms that we have spoken with um, say they want the conservatorship that they don't have and they can't get through the uh, care courts yeah. because, as you note, some of these people with mental health problems and addiction issues are resistant to treatment. Should there be more power for family members, at least on a temporary basis, to step in and say, we need to institutionalize this person? Well, we did just that. It went into effect in January. Uh, counties can opt in on conservatorship form that does precisely what those families called for. That interim and substantive and groundbreaking uh, uh, bridge was care court, which is not custodial care. Right. Uh, it's not substituted care, it's supported care supported plans. We work with the counties. We oblige the counties, not just the clients. Up to two years of support uh, requiring housing and supportive services, a due process that never existed in the past. And we're just winding up. We'll get about 2,000 people in this calendar year into the program. And then it goes from its pilot phase, eight counties, to all 58 in the state of California. We estimate eligibility around seven to 12,000 folks will benefit from Care Court. But again, it's component 
component part of this larger mosaic. There's no state in America at scale and scope and yeah. consequences doing more on mental health reform than the state of California. Again, all of this component parts of a larger mosaic. Care court, conservatorship reform, Prop 1. And as you know, because we started, we just launched this new series on our show called Homeless in America. Um, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you that one of the reasons that the homeless problem exists uh, is because the cost of living 100%. and the cost of housing yeah. in yeah. places like San Francisco yeah. and Los Angeles, where it is very expensive. Um, with the end of these COVID funds that provide uh, re- provided rent yeah. relief, yeah. a lot of people are now facing these yeah. choices um, where they have to live in their car yeah. because they can't afford rent. Uh, what is California doing about that? Uh, more at scale than anyone else in the country. We have something called CalAIM. It's a reform the most. And forgive me, it's a lot of hyperbole here, so people may roll their eyes, but I, I mean it. The most significant reform of the Medicaid system, Medi-Cal, in the state of California. It's called CalAIM. And we're integrating through whole person care new strategies to deal with brain health and physical health. But part of those strategies include housing and supports for rent and connecting that to the Medicaid system. Number two, we're also reforming the Mental Health Services Act under Proposition 1 that redirects a billion dollars and ongoing appropriation a year that also provides supports for housing and rent. Prevention is a huge part of this overall strategy. All right, California Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, always good to have you here. Thank good you. to be with you. Tomorrow marks two years since Russian forces invaded Ukraine. At the time, many military analysts feared Putin's army would quickly encircle the capital city of Kiev and take control of the entire country pretty easily. But two years later, Ukraine is still holding on, though there are new tests of its resiliency. We'll get into that story next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Topping our world lead in under an hour, it will be midnight in Ukraine. On February 24th, 2022, sirens signaled the first Russian bombs falling on Kyiv. 
Today, the biggest war in Europe since World War II grinds on. Ukraine's air defense says it shot down 23 out of 31 drones launched by Russia overnight. The drones that did get through killed three people, according to officials in Odessa, Ukraine. Here in the United States, lawmakers are on vacation, leaving $60 billion in new aid for the embattled Democratic nation in limbo. Right now, we're going to take a look back at how we got here. It's been two years since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. After months building up its troops and armor, Russia's forces rolled across the border and brutally attacked Ukrainian cities and airports. As the violent assault unfolded, Ukrainians naturally were terrified. People waited in line at ATMs and at gas stations, trying to get out of the country, trying to flee. Train stations became bomb shelters and scenes similar to those from World War II. We are an independent country, Ukraine, and we are totally not same as Russians. And we don't want to be a part of Russia or any other country. Russian President Vladimir Putin described the invasion as, quote, a special military operation. His goal was to rewind the clock. He was immediately met with sanctions by the international community. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. At first, many people in the West worried that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky might flee the country. But instead, he took to the streets of Kyiv, defiant. We are all here defending our independence, our state, and it will remain so. U.S. officials were concerned that the capital would fall within days, but Russia was not prepared for the Ukrainian resistance that followed. Is Ukraine going to win this war? Yes, of course. As 2022 progressed, Ukraine first pushed Russia out of territory to the north of Kyiv, then later drove them back in the east and then the south. But last year's Ukrainian counteroffensive failed. Much anticipated and with U.S. Bradley fighting vehicles a key component, it was supposed to break through to the coast near Crimea. But Russia's defenses proved too strong and the war seemed to enter a stalemate. Just this week, Russia captured the Ukrainian town of Avdivka, its biggest victory in nine months, and the latest sign that as the war enters its third year, Ukraine is badly short of ammunition and badly outnumbered on the battlefield. I'm afraid Ukraine will not be able to stand without our partners and allies. Both sides have suffered significant losses and millions of innocent people have been displaced. The White House blames Congress for Russia's recent gains after failing to approve $60 billion in Ukraine aid while Vladimir Putin continues to bide his time, hoping Western support of Ukraine will subside. With U.S. aid for Ukraine caught up in the politics of Washington, how much could European countries go at it alone if need be? The ambassador from a key NATO ally will join me in the studio next. Plus, we're standing by for that update on that major space achievement, the American space lander on the moon. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead. We're going to take a closer look now at the big question. Two years into the biggest ground war in Europe since World War II, how will Ukraine sustain its fight against Russia? Joining us now, the French ambassador to the United States, Laurent Belli. Um, Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us. It's good to see you, sir. Okay. Given the lapse in U.S. funding for Ukraine, given former President Trump's power over the Republican Party and his disdain for NATO, how do you assess Europe's security situation today? Well, 
It's a um, tough moment for, uh, but first of all for Ukraine, because um, the clock is ticking and uh, Ukraine is um, needed or, or support. But I think it's uh, what is important to understand is that uh, we are not uh, helping Ukraine for helping Ukraine. With we are helping Ukraine for helping us. And I think it's exactly the same thing for, for the US. It will be a huge mistake to think that uh, a victory of Russia over Ukraine could be a, a victory for uh, the United States. And what is at stake at the moment is really about uh, the legacy of the greatest generation, the world we have been living in, 75 uh, years of peace, thanks to NATO. And uh, I think we have to rem remind that uh, with a lot of, um, let's say, impetus, because it's, uh, it's a really a key moment. And this key moment comes as we're about to hit the anniversary. What is it, the 80th anniversary of D-Day? Of uh, of exactly, yes. And, I mean, the juxtaposition of those two things, everything the United States did for Europe then, along with, you know, righteous French and, and, and Brits, etc., and what the U.S. is doing now, it must be upsetting. It was not only about uh, doing things for Europe, it was about shaping a new world, a new, um, a new conception of a foreign relation, a rules-based uh, international order, which have been working again uh, pretty well. And so I think it's a moment where we have to make some cho choices, which kind of world we want to um, give to our children, grandchildren, what about uh, the legacy we want to, um, to give. On the European side, it's very clear. We have been uh, bringing more, uh, almost already 100 billion uh, US dollars of help. We just agreed a new package of 50 plus billion of US dollars, and each of our country, uh, European countries, is having also bilateral uh, agreement with uh, Ukraine. France is providing three billions more. The Germany has, has made a lot of effort. I read today that also Denmark has just signed a, a new agreement. So on the European side, we are very convinced. And we really think that, uh, again, North America and Europe has to stand together for our values, for the world we have been fighting for 80 years ago. President Biden pledged to, quote, do everything he can to support Ukraine on a call with G7 leaders today, a group that France is part of, obviously. Do allies accept Biden's hands are tied because of what is going on it, with the Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, because of, well, Donald Trump is one of the reasons, but there's also this new kind of like anti-NATO, anti-interventionist fever uh, within the Republicans in Congress. Well, we have, of course, to respect dynamic uh, of the domestic politics, but we have also make the fact right uh, one of the facts that I wanted to make clear is that uh, European, Europeans are spending a lot, uh, much more than the Europeans. Uh, also, I think it's important to understand that we are not just fighting for uh, supporting Ukraine, but uh, that Ukraine is fight fighting for all values, that it's mm -hmm. our security interest. So it will be just a mistake to focus about NATO and uh, uh, what the European Union is doing. The real issue is, do we want Ukraine to win? Or are we going to push for a Russian victory? And in which kind of world we are living and we are going to give to our children if Russia is winning? What do you say when you hear Republicans in Congress say that Europe is too reliant upon the United States for its own security? What, what, what would you say to that? I'd say that's, that's partly correct. But uh, I have also to, um, to explain that uh, these last two years have changed Europe. For the last uh, 30 years, we have been uh, harvesting the dividend of peace. We were the junior partner of an alliance with a, a st stronghold of the uh, United States. 
We are reinvesting in our defense. We are ramping up of um, production of ammunition of art artillery system. We triple our production of uh, ammunition. But still, I will have also to acknowledge to uh, your audience and that we need the U.S. leadership. That we are not in a position yet to match um, the U.S. support to uh, to Ukraine. But I don't think it's also that it will be uh, fair not to recall that part of our spending are coming back to the U.S. coffer while uh, none of um, the U.S. contribution is going to European coffer. So it's, uh, it's also we are in a different situation that yeah. when European are spending, they are also spending to boost U.S. economy. In an interview on French radio RTL on Thursday, uh, France's armed forces minister said that Russia threatened to shoot down French planes in the Black Sea last month. What would France do if Russia did shoot down a, a French plane? That's a, an interesting moment because we see an hardening of uh, the Russian position. We have seen also uh, so this kind of uh, unprofessional uh, behavior. We have seen uh, cyber attack. We have seen uh, disinformation. We have seen like uh, these uh, David crosses painted on the, the wall of Paris to try to provoke unrest between uh, our citizens. So we have uh, also to take stock of that new reality of a more uh, aggressive Russia. That's one of the reasons why our president is convening uh, a meeting on Monday in Paris with like-minded um, countries to uh, show our resolve, because it's really the moment where we have to show to Russia that we are not going to be uh, afraid, that we will stand for our values and that we will support uh, Ukraine. It's entirely possible that Donald Trump will be elected president in November, and it is entirely possible based on the statements that he has made and based on the statements of former aides of his that he will want to withdraw the United States from NATO. Is France preparing for such a thing? We don't, are not preparing for such a thing. Um, we think that um, at uh, the end of the day, everybody will realize that we are much stronger when we stick together. And um, so we are not having a, pl a plan B. All right. Well, you are a diplomat. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. French ambassador to the United States, Laurent Belli. Uh, merci beaucoup. About 2,000 miles away from Ukraine in the occupied West Bank, two Palestinian-American teenagers were both shot and killed. The families of both blame Israeli forces. Next, in a CNN exclusive, those families call on the United States to respond. Stay with us. In our world lead, CNN speaking exclusively with the families of two Palestinian-American teenagers killed in separate but eerily similar incidents. Within the last two last month, the two 17-year-olds were shot in the head and killed in the occupied West Bank. Their families claim both teens were killed by an Israeli gunman. Israeli police say they're investigating the shootings, but family members say no arrests have been made and they're demanding answers. CNN's Alex Marquardt has this report and we want to warn you it does contain some graphic images. These are the final moments of Mohammed Hodur's life, picnicking with his cousin driving through the bumpy hills of the occupied West Bank. Then, cries. As people rush to the car, Muhammad shot in the head, his body limp, his hair covered in blood as he's carried away. The 17-year-old U.S. citizen mortally wounded. He died in the hospital, the second American teen in just weeks believed to have been killed by Israeli bullets. He was such a beautiful child, like inside and out. Mohammed's aunt and uncle live in Cleveland. They promised Mohammed, who was born in Miami, that they would bring him back to the U.S. after graduating from high school. Why you killed him? For what? What are he doing for you? Nothing. Nothing. Just you see him, he's happy in his life with his cousin. 
ذاتس ات هي كل killed him man in uh, in cold in cold blood man who do you think is responsible government the government man the israeli government yeah these innocent kids not doing nothing just being shot and killed in cold blood for no good reason all from the israeli government not doing nothing much to prevent these type of things another 17-year-old american citizen tawfiq abdel jabbar who grew up in louisiana was killed in january He had just moved to the West Bank last year, and in an almost identical incident, he was out for an afternoon with friends when his family said he was shot multiple times. He was driving, going to our own property that we have on that mountain to do a simple cookout with him and his friends. Tell me what Taufi was like as a brother. He was my right-hand man, um, a brother I could go to for anything. He was very kind, unselfish, outgoing, and the amount of friends I seen that he made in this small period of time was outrageous. The families of both boys say that Israeli gunmen were responsible. It's not clear exactly who. A U.S. official told CNN their deaths are being investigated. In Taufik's case, the IDF told CNN they're looking into the possible involvement of an Israeli soldier. During almost five months of war in Gaza, violence by Israelis against Palestinians in the West Bank has soared. More than 400 Palestinians have been killed. About a quarter of them were under 18. The Biden administration has since imposed unprecedented sanctions against Israeli settler extremists. We insist that people be treated fairly, that they be treated with due process, uh, and that they be treated humanely. Last week, I asked Secretary of State Antony Blinken about the string of American deaths and detentions at the hands of Israelis. When it comes to the investigations into the teenagers' deaths, where do those stand? We've made clear that with regard to the, the incidents you alluded to, uh, there needs to be an investigation. We need to get the facts, and if appropriate, there needs to be accountability. He says the safety and security of American citizens around the world is their biggest priority. Do you believe that? No. No. What do you want the U.S. government to do? To move, not to just talking. We don't need talking, man. We need something. We want to see something. Are you confident that there will be some kind of justice in the end? I'm hopeful, yeah. But it wouldn't be out of the ordinary if, it's, if we don't get the justice that we're hoping for. The controversial U.S. support for Israel's war in Gaza, now even further complicated by American citizens getting caught up in the violence. What power do you think the U.S. government has that they're not using right now to figure out what happened? I believe that they have every power in the world to resolve my brother Depp to, to know who killed him. I feel like they don't want to. They're waiting for the story to be quiet, just to vanish away, but that's not going to happen. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has, in the past, condemned extremist settler violence against Palestinians. He has not commented on the deaths of these two American teenagers, which a U.S. official tells me Israel is investigating and the Biden administration is watching closely. That official saying that if they feel those Israeli investigations are not being conducted properly, these cases will get escalated to more senior members of the Israeli government. Jake? Lenar, thanks to Alex Marquardt for that report. We're standing by for an update any moment now about that incredible moon landing. The first successful American mission in 50 years. Will that update include the first images of the mission? Maybe even a selfie from the moon lander itself? Odie, we'll take a quick break before that news conference begins. 
I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start this hour with breaking news any minute. We expect an update from NASA after this truly historic moon landing last night. Step back in history with me to this time yesterday. We were anxiously awaiting to see if this small private American company partnering with NASA could pull off landing on the moon's surface for the first time in more than 50 years. And then NASA Administrator Bill Nelson came here to this desk on The Lead and he announced there were technical difficulties. And he, in fact, he seemed to be preparing us for the chance that this lunar lander, nicknamed Odie, might crash into the moon. Well, it's white knuckle time. Their ability to land is not with a radar, but with light pulses called LIDAR. And it is on the blink. It's not working. It's not working. Whether that eventually degrades into a crash on the moon or out into space. I don't know the answer to that. Let's hope that this might be one of those miracles. So after all that and those white knuckle moments, the miracle apparently did happen. And the company behind Odie announced that the lander was in fact upright and transmitting from the moon. Uh, what an outstanding effort. I know this was a nail biter, but we are on the, si on the surface and we are transmitting and uh, welcome to the moon. Houston. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper and we start this hour with breaking news any minute. We expect an update from NASA after this truly historic moon landing last night. Step back in history with me to this time yesterday. We were anxiously awaiting to see if this small private American company partnering with NASA could pull off landing on the moon's surface for the first time in more than 50 years. And then NASA Administrator Bill Nelson came here to this desk on the lead and he announced there were technical difficulties. And he, in fact, he seemed to be preparing us for the chance that this lunar lander nicknamed Odie might crash into the moon. Well, it's white knuckle time. Their ability to land is not with a radar, but with light pulses called LIDAR. And it is on the blink. It's not working. It's not working. Whether that eventually degrades into a crash on the moon or out into space, I don't know the answer to that. Let's hope that this might be one of those miracles. So after all that and those white knuckle moments, the miracle apparently did happen, and the company behind Odie announced that the lander was in fact upright and transmitting from the moon. Uh, what an outstanding effort. I know this was a nail biter, but we are on the, on the surface and we are transmitting. And uh, welcome to the moon. Houston, Odysseus has found his new home. Odysseus is Odie's full name. Uh, CNN space and defense correspondent Kristen Fisher is here with me. Uh, Kristen, Intuitive, the name of the company, says Odie is safely on the moon and is transmitting, but we have not seen any photos yet. Why not? 
I think by this point, 24 hours land after landing, it's clear that they're having some big issues getting these images back to Earth. Uh, we don't have an official reason why, but there's two likely culprits. And the first would be the landing location at the South Pole of the Moon. It is much harder to get a clear signal back to Earth at the South Pole than at the equator, which is where the Apollo missions all landed. And if you think about it, down at the South Pole, the curvature of the moon makes it much easier for the signal to get blocked by like a, a boulder. Yeah, or, sorry, I'm gonna uh, just interrupt because the press conference is starting right. at NASA and I know you wanna hear this more than I do even. So let's listen in. On February 22nd, Intuitive Machines' IM-1 mission softly landed in the South Pole region of the moon near Malapert A. Named Odysseus, the lander completed a seven-day journey to become the first U.S. soft landing on the moon in more than 50 years. Joining us today to provide insight on this historic mission and to answer questions, we have Steve Altimus, co-founder and CEO at Intuitive Machines, Joel Kearns, Deputy Associate Administrator for Exploration, Science Mission Directorate at NASA Headquarters in Washington, Dr. Tim Crane, Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder at Intuitive Machines, and Dr. Prasan Desai, Deputy Associate Administrator of the Space Technology Mission Directorate at NASA Headquarters. First, we'll start with some initial remarks from our briefers before opening it up for questions. We'll be taking your questions on our phone bridge this afternoon. So if you've joined us today, please press star one to add your name to the queue and ask your question. We'll now begin with opening remarks from Steve. Thank you, Nilifer. Well, hello, everybody. It's, uh, I reflected before we came into uh, the briefing studio this afternoon that this is the first briefing about being on the surface of the, of the moon uh, for the first time in about 52 years in this room. So that's quite incredible, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, intuitive Machines, uh, Odysseus Lander landed yesterday at 524 uh, Central Time. Uh, we did have a stable, controlled landing and a safe, soft touchdown. I'll give you a little bit of description today about uh, the state of Odysseus, or Odie, uh, and its uh, attitude on the surface and what, what you can expect from it over the coming days. Um, it's pretty incredible. Uh, it's, it was a quite a spicy seven-day mission uh, to get to the moon. Uh, and I'll give you some fun facts about uh, how far we've traveled and, and how fast we've uh, gone. So just to begin with, uh, the vehicle is uh, stable uh, near or at our intended landing site. Uh, we do have communications with the, uh, with the lander. It's from the larger radio astronomy dishes around the world that are part of our uh, lunar telemetry network um, and to the spacecraft from several of the antennas and two of the radios. So that's phenomenal to begin with. So we're beginning to, uh, now that we're on the Goonhilly dish in the United Kingdom, uh, we're downloading and commanding downloading data from the, from the buffers in the spacecraft and commanding the spacecraft and uh, trying to get you surface photos because I know that everyone's hungry for those surface photos. Uh, but we got some uh, interesting data that gives us a position, um, an attitude of where the, where the lander is and I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, we have uh, so, uh, the sun impinging on the solar arrays and uh, charging our batteries. Uh, we are providing power to the spacecraft and we're at 100% state of charge. That's fantastic. 
Um, I talked to you about the communications, and uh, we will be taking an image, uh, hopefully, this weekend from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, to find the lander and pinpoint its location uh, in the South Pole region of the moon. Um, if you can go to the photo here uh, that we have, this is a photo that I thought you'd find interesting that we'll release to the public here. Um, here we're flying about 10 kilometers over the surface of Schomburger Crater near the South Pole region of the moon. Uh, we're still about 200 kilometers uh, up, um, uh, up range from, from where our intended landing site is. But uh, here we have a, uh, one of our public affairs cameras taking this beautiful image. And you see how shadowed and uh, you know, undulating the, the terrain is. And that's important to understand how difficult it is to, to land on the surface of the moon. So thanks for that image. Uh, going back, uh, I could say that it was quite uh, phenomenal that if you think about it, we were traveling 25,000 miles an hour and we came down and touched down at about six miles an hour with a downrange uh, tra traverse of about two miles an hour. That's walking speed. Um, so that's kind of uh, just an interesting metric for you. We traveled uh, two and a half times the distance to the lunar surface. That's about 600,000 miles uh, due to the trajectory and the number of orbits that we've uh, gone through. Uh, in doing that and in, and in performing that incredible deceleration, our first of a kind uh, liquid oxygen, liquid methane, additively manufactured 3D printed uh, engine um, burned six times for a cumulative burn time of over 20 minutes. Um, it's just an incredible performing machine, and we're really proud to take that technology to a TRL level nine. Um, I got to say something about the, uh, the team. The ops teams were cool under pressure for the whole seven days. Um, it was quite amazing to see them in work, real space cowboys. And, uh, you know, we worked through all the difficulties. If you think back from Apollo days, there wasn't one mission that went absolutely perfectly. So you have to be ad adaptable, you have to be innovative, and you have to persevere. And we persevered right up until the last moments to get this soft touchdown like we wanted to. Let me just talk briefly about attitude on the surface. This is a little lander. I'm going to pretend that's the rock that the lander's leaning on. We think we came down with, like I said, about six miles an hour this way and about two miles an hour this way. And caught a foot in the surface and the, and the lander has tipped like this. And we believe this is the, the, the orientation of the lander on the moon. We're getting sun moving this way around the lander so the solar arrays are being powered and we believe a little later we'll get solar sun on the top deck solar array. Uh, the majority of our payloads are all in view um, and we are uh, collecting science and we've collected science along the way um, to the moon and I've uh, been downloading that data. In particular, three payloads that are uh, positioned on the lander they, uh, have been active, operationally used in this, um, in this mission. The LN1 uh, payload out of uh, Marshall Space Flight Center, uh, we actually assisted us in determining our precise location um, in space, uh, orbit determination we call it, um, using a, a Doppler measurement. Uh, that was very useful. Um, and, and as it was part of the Deep Space Network, it augmented our communications from our own commercial network. 
Uh, the other one uh, you've heard about was the uh, NASA Doppler LiDAR from Langley Research Center, and we integrated their uh, telemetry stream into our nav application, navigation application, and we use that for our power descent initiation. Um, and then finally, the one that was very useful was a new technology out of Glenn Research Center, um, and that was the radio frequency mass gauging. And that, uh, that instrument really gave us an understanding of what, what the propellant tank levels were, uh, which helped us budget the amount of propellant to take us all the way safely to the surface of the moon. So um, very interesting uh, mission so far. As we get more telemetry and uh, turn more things on, we'll be updating you over the coming days of the analysis and the reconstruction of, of you know, the landing. Uh, Tim can comment that on that a little bit today on how we, how we did the power descent all the way to the surface and why we believe um, in the data that I'm talking to you about today. Uh, yesterday we thought from, just to clear up some confusion, we thought we were upright. And the reason was that the tanks were reading, um, uh, this is the X direction, and the tanks were reading uh, gravity on the moon. At the fill levels, there were still residuals in the tank, and we saw those measurements in the X direction. Well, that was stale telemetry, so uh, when we worked through the night to get other telemetry down, we noticed that in the Z direction, this direction, um, is where we're seeing the tank residual tank quantities. And so that's what tells us with certain fairly certain terms, the orientation of the vehicle. And hopefully we'll get a picture here uh, this weekend and, and share it with you. Millifer, that's all I have. Thank you so much, Steve. Next up, we have Joel Kearns. Joel? Hey, thank you, Noah. For first, let me congratulate Intuitive Machines for three major accomplishments. The first, as Steve said, is for having the first a successful soft landing on the moon by the United States since 1972. The second is for being the first non-government commercial organization to actually touch down safely on the surface of the moon. And the third is for having um, a touchdown point um, 80 degrees south latitude, much closer to the south pole of the moon than any earlier uh, US robotic or human explorers. Let me give you some of the context for the importance of intuitive machines accomplishment on their mission. In 2017, the nation charged NASA to expand our scientific and technical work in the area of the moon, science, technology, and human explorers under our Artemis initiative. As part of that, NASA went down the path to, to listen to what industry had been telling us for some years, which is that for robotic landing services, that we should be able to purchase that from US industry instead of doing it ourselves at NASA for robotic systems. Now, NASA is very good at building and operating robotic probes throughout the solar system, but we knew we'd be going back to the moon repeatedly to do science and technical studies and eventually human exploration. So we put into place this commercial lunar payload services initiative, or CLIPS, to buy, in effect, the service to bring NASA cargo down to the surface of the moon and have the data from those experiments brought back to Earth by industry. Intuitive Machines is one of the participants in that initiative that has now been awarded three service contracts to bring NASA equipment, experiments, and cargo down to the surface of the moon. And this was Intuitive Machines' first attempt, their first mission to the moon, carrying our cargo. Now, I have talked about all the potential advantages of having um, industry do this for NASA. Um, the industry had told us years ago that they thought they were technically ready to do it, 
that they thought if they specialized in doing it that they could probably do it at less cost and much more frequently and much faster from initial order than NASA probably could since we would normally build a custom spacecraft for every endeavor. And we've seen that so far in the progress that our CLPS vendors have made as they're working down to fly off their first missions. In two of machines though, however, in doing a soft touchdown on the moon has provided the first real evidence that this is possible to do. It's possible with today's technology, with dedicated engineering and appropriate financial management to have a private company actually design a spacecraft, develop a mission, buy a rocket, and fly all the way to the moon and soft land on the surface of the moon. Not just in an area where we landed earlier, decades ago, near the equator with the Apollo missions, but in the unusual territory of the South Pole, which is the focus of our future human Artemis missions. This is a gigantic accomplishment. On this particular mission, we had the company bring six NASA science and technology experiments uh, on board down to the lunar surface. They ranged to, get, to do studies in um, science, in looking at um, the electron density and plasma on the surface of the moon, technology studies such as measuring a rocket plume impingement during landing, navigation studies on the way to the moon, down to the surface of the moon, um, laser ranging, fuel quantity, uh, as other investigations. And, it's, and interesting enough, when we started this, we had put together a list of different instruments and payloads that the commercial lunar payload services companies could volunteer to take down to the surface of the moon. And Intuitive Machines picked a complement of five payloads, which we later augmented with the radio frequency mass gauge fuel measurement experiment. And Intuitive Machines picked a number of um, payloads and experiments from NASA to, to bring down, which as Steve brought out, greatly benefited them during the execution of their mission. So at this point today, as Intuitive Machines um, looks to make sure they understand uh, the um, status of the Odysseus vehicle, we are already looking back at scientific and technological data that we accumulated during the transit out to the moon, during the deorbit operations, and we're looking forward to getting even more data as Intuitive Machines figure, uh, finishes the checkout um, of Odysseus. Okay, now, in so, doing so we have been um, listening to an update from NASA after this historic this. moon landing last night. Officials from Intuitive Machines, a private company that partnered with NASA, confirming that their lander named Odysseus, nicknamed Odie, is transmitting from the south pole of the moon despite some serious last minute complications. They did confirm some problems that Odie is not upright. Odie has tipped over after landing and is on its side. Uh, CNN's Kristen Fisher is back with me. Uh, and Kristen, I think we've gotten the major news from that news conference. I don't think we're going to get photos. Um, uh, I think that's pretty clear. They said something about stale telemetry. Do you want to explain what that means? <laughs> stale telemetry or old telemetry, old data coming from the spacecraft. The reason Steve Altimus, the CEO of Intuitive Machines, came out and said that is because yesterday the company put out a post on X and said that the lunar lander Odysseus is upright. After that press conference just there, you can see that that was not the case, that Odysseus had indeed tipped over. Steve Altimus said that a leg got caught and that it tipped over on a rock. So I think Steve was really kind of going out of his way to say, uh, hey, we're not dis deliberately misleading all of you by saying it was upright. We just had old telemetry 
old data. Um, is that how is that how these people talk? Stale telemetry <laughs> instead of just saying we had stale old, old old data. Hey, that's better than some of the the lengthy NASA astro- acronyms. That well, we used and to also, have they, and at least with. they did disclose it, right? I mean, they did. They did disclose it. I, I I think the big question right now, Jake, is, you know, what is the definition of a successful soft landing? Historically speaking, a successful soft landing on the surface of the moon is if a spacecraft makes a controlled landing and successfully is transmitting signals. And so Intuitive Machines and NASA is saying, yes, we met that benchmark because um, it is the, the payloads are still working, the solar cells are charging, and there is a signal being transmitted uh, to and from Mission Control on Earth and Odysseus up on the moon. Um, but for those of you saying, hey, now, it, it, it landed, but it, it tipped over. That's not a, a perfect landing. And hey, we haven't seen pictures yet. Um, it really gets down to the definition of what is a successful soft landing. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of gray area there. Right. Could have been worse. Could have been a lot worse. I mean, we were talking about... uh, We thought it was going to crash. The potential for an Apollo 13 of a robotic lander yesterday. I will say the fact that Except without the happy ending. Yes. The fact that they were able to uh, make that quick fix at the last minute yesterday. Kristen, stick with me. I want to bring in Miles O'Brien, who's CNN's aerospace analyst, and also Jim Bell, who has worked with NASA on their Mars projects. Jim, let me start with you. What do you make of the news? Odie's tipped over. Well, okay, they didn't stick the landing, okay? (laughs) But in my book, if you're able to get a signal through and start to get some of that scientific engineering data that they were originally setting out to get, then this, I think it's going to be regarded as a success, absolutely. And Miles, we heard that moment NASA's administrator uh, last night told me this was a a white knuckle moment, Bill Nelson, uh, when the success of the landing was in doubt. So obviously this is better news than that. Um, Help us understand what happened in terms of the landing and how this ended up being uh, another moment of extraordinary human problem solving. Yeah, I I would say any landing you can walk away from is a good one. That's what pilots always (laughs) say anyway. Uh, and yeah. I think I think you're you've hit the nail on the head, Jake. The extraordinary effort of that team to, in real time, with a certain deadline facing, come up with a software patch to piggyback onto an experiment which is on the craft. Surely somebody had thought about this before. I want to hear what the story is on that. But whatever the case, to come up with that solution in short order. Otherwise, probably would have been just another crater in the moon, and we don't need another one of those. (laughs) So I think this is a success on several levels. It's a different kind of motor. It's 3D printed. It's methane fueled. We've never done that on the moon before. That rocket motor worked well. Uh, There's a lot of things to put in the W column, but clearly the Romanian judge would not give that landing a 10. (laughs) And Jim, you've been a part of complicated (laughs) missions such as this. Help us understand what a team effort, what what the melding of minds um, that are both technically brilliant and also extraordinarily creative at the same time. Absolutely, you know, one of the great things about working with uh, the kinds of engineers like we're seeing at Intuitive Machines, and they're all over NASA as well, is that they think about every possible thing that could go wrong, a contingency in that uh, NASA language that you and Kristen were talking about. And so, you know, they've thought about these things ahead of time. The, the improbable happens and they're prepared for it. Okay, 
we're going to switch to uh, you know Plan B, and they, they're ready with that. And also to add to Miles' admiration for this situation, you know they they the spacecraft itself was built and designed with the robustness to handle being tipped over on its side and still getting solar power, still able to communicate with the Earth and potentially still able to, to do much of its scientific mission. All right. Thanks, everyone. Really appreciate it. Keep it here on CNN. Check with CNN.com for more updates on this historic moon landing. It's a story we're going to continue to cover uh, in the hours and days ahead. Up next, breaking news, a major update in the case of a student killed on the campus of the University of Georgia. We'll be right back. We're back with breaking news. Sad breaking news. A suspect is now in custody in connection to the death of a young woman on the campus of the University of Georgia. CNN's Ryan Young is live near the campus in Athens, Georgia. Ryan, what do we know about the arrest? Well, this is what we've been told so far. First, it was developed as a person of interest that has now turned into a person who's in custody. This apartment complex that's behind me, that's where everyone's been focused all afternoon. If you look over there, you can see the mobile command unit. We've seen more reinforcements come in over the last hour or so. They brought in large lights. They brought in more officers. It looks like they're going to be here for quite some time. Over here, we've also seen them searching the wood line and also anything like a dump store or by the fences. We've seen them even talking to some of the businesses nearby to ask them for their video surveillance to see if someone was moving along their um, back uh, property line. The reason why is they're desperately searching for something. We've seen these detectives sort of sorting through the trash, uh, going hand through hand through some of these bags. This has been the focus. Now, on the back side of this apartment complex that's right here, that's where the trail is that they found this young university student, Lakin Hope Riley, who was 22 years old. This community is shocked. We were outside her sorority a little earlier. You can see all the tears flowing. There are people dropping off flowers. You understand that this community is so tightly woven. This is one of the premier universities in the state of Georgia. And there's nothing like this has happened in 20 years. This trail, people were still using it today. Some of them unaware of this crime. We've walked parts of this trail. You understand people felt pretty safe back there, but all that safety has been broken because of something that happened out there. And there's really been no details about that just yet. Now we're told at seven o'clock, Jake, that they'll finally have a news conference. And we're hoping to get some of these answers from police and investigators who from all across the state have poured into this area to find out whoever committed this crime. We now know a suspect's been arrested, don't have a motive yet, don't have any of the details that we're desperately all trying to search, but this entire community has been shaken by what happened just on the other side of this apartment complex. Jake? Ryan Young in Athens, Georgia. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. And our faith lead today, every day in her role as co-anchor of NBC News Today show, Savannah Guthrie brings millions of Americans their morning news. Now she is stepping outside her comfort zone and revealing what many viewers may not know about the news anchor in her deeply personal account of her faith. Here now is Savannah Guthrie, a friend of mine, I should disclose, author of the book, Mostly What God Does, Reflections on Seeking and Finding His Love Everywhere. Savannah, thank you for being there. We should note that the book cover looks different from what we just showed there, because this, this has you, <laughs> but it's like a, it could be used as a bookmark. Well, that's what I told you. This was my compromise with the publisher. I didn't want my picture on it. So they said, what if we put it there? You can remove, remove it, and now it's a bookmark, Jake. Isn't that, so it's value added. But I can understand why the publisher would do that, because you are beloved. You're America's sweetheart. So they would want to put you on the book. 
But turn it around, it has the message of the book. The message of the book is mostly what God does is love you. So let's talk about this. <laughs> um, the book is a beautiful collection of very personal essays on, on your faith, on your relationship with God. Now, faith is the belief in things that we cannot prove. It's like yes. the definition of faith. Yes. You professionally do the exact opposite. You're yeah. all about what you can prove, what yeah. are facts. So was it uncomfortable to talk about something that is in a way, and I don't mean this disparagingly at all, but it's not what you do. It's not what I do, but this isn't about my professional life. This is about my personal side. But yes, if you're asking me, was it terrifying? Was <laughs> it outside my comfort zone? Oh, yes. I feel it's the most vulnerable thing I've ever done. And if you had told me, you're going to write a book, Savannah, any book, let alone one about faith. I'm not a prolific author like you, Jake. You are a brilliant, brilliant person. W I, that, it does not surprise me that you wrote a book. I, I never thought I would, and I certainly didn't think I'd be writing about my faith. Because when you write about your faith, you know, the book is about God. It's not about me. But faith doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in real lives, in real circumstances. And faith, you really figure out what your faith is, not in times of great triumph, but in sadness and darkness and doubt. And I write a lot about that. Yeah. Um, and I try not to run from those questions. And I think, you know, while this isn't a book of journalism, this is a book about faith. And it's called mostly what God does is, is love you. That's right. the thesis of the book. I do try to not dodge the hard questions that faith presents about the world that we live in, the world that you cover and I cover, yeah. and the way we probably ask ourselves every day, how, how, how can this be? How would a good God let a world like this continue? And, and, and why don't you share with people? I read the book. It's beautiful. How, why don't you share with people? How, how can you justify it? Because... You know, you write about in the book about how being a mother opened your eyes to what it's like for God because the love that God has for us is like the love a mother has for a child. But some people lose their children. Yeah. You know, I mean, I write about that. Yes. I mean, you and your beautiful family are alive and well and wonderful. There they are. Uh, look at Feldy over there. Um, <laughs> but 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 there's horrible stuff that happens. Yeah. And, and that's the to me, that's the crucible of faith. I mean, that's doubts. Mic drop. You know, some people struggle with is there a God at all? For me, that has not been the particular obstacle of my life. But have I wondered where God is, whether God is well-intentioned toward me or the world, what this plan is, how there can be suffering? Yeah, I've wondered about all those things. I mean, spoiler alert, Jake, I do not answer the unanswerable existential <laughs> questions of all time in this book. And no, if I did... You should say that you want to sell books. I was going to say... All the answers are here, everybody. <laughs> no, I'd charge triple for it if I had those answers. It's just an exploration and an yeah. embracing of doubt. And for me, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is an aspect and a feature of faith. In right. fact, I think doubt is really faith being worked out. And right. I, I, it is my belief, and not just something I made up, but I think that's something that's grounded scripturally and doctrinally, is that God wants us to bring our doubts and our questions and is eager to engage them. So it's not like your life has been without struggles. Um, you're, you lost your father when you were only 16 years old. And you write about recently getting your first tattoo, <laughs> yeah. which you can show us, All My Love, yeah. which is written in your father's handwriting from yeah. a letter that he wrote to your mom, I think, right? Yeah. In All My Love. It's a beautiful thing. Um, you say it represents what you've learned about faith. How? Yeah. So this was, this was a love letter that my father wrote to my mother, um, and this is his actual handwriting. I never thought I'd get a tattoo. That was even more unlikely than writing a book. Um, but I liked it because it was you know, an homage to him and reminded me it re it's a good mantra for life. All my love. I feel like there are all these perplexing questions that we have 
interpersonally, in our professions, and I have a sign on my desk that says, love is the answer to most questions. It feels like a throwaway. It is quite simple, but it's not easy. But, you know, I kind of feel in life like surge love to the problem. That's usually going to be the answer. The answer will lie there. And then I also feel like that is what I've learned about faith through ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think so many people, whether you, you believe in God or don't, I think we all kind of wrestle with the concept one way or the other. And a lot of people, or at least I know, I've always wondered all my life, you know, what does God think of me? What, what does God think of my choices? Have I made mistakes in my life? Am I worthy of love? You know, I grew up in a very kind of religious, churchy background, which I love and treasure many aspects of. But I think I felt a lot of guilt and shame and self-doubt. And when I came across this verse in Ephesians that was retranslated for a book called The Message, it, it changed everything for me. It just reframed how I thought about faith. And the verse was, Watch what God does, and you do it too, like the way children learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. What does God think of my choices? Mostly what God does is love you. It belongs to all of us. And my, my theory is, and my belief, and I think what i found is that if you could really let it in, if you could really absorb that just for one moment, that God really does love every human heart, and you let it penetrate you, well, it's transformative. It's profound. And I think that love can't be contained. And I think that's what I'm trying to express. But again, not running away. This isn't happy talk. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't think our God is one of happy talk and throwaway slogans. But I think that if you really reflect on it and think of it, it can be quite profound and, and change you from within. The book is Mostly What God Does, Reflections on Seeking and Finding His Love Everywhere. The author is my dear friend, Savannah Guthrie. Uh, and it is a beautiful book, and whether or not you believe in a God with a flowing robe and a big beard or the concept of God as just the universe itself and the unexplained and the unexplainable, uh, it's worth reading and pondering. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jake, for having me. So good to see you. Appreciate it. We also want to bring you one man's remarkable story from Ukraine two years after Russia's invasion. CNN found a Ukrainian fighter who has seen almost every single turning point of the war in his country. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh will have his story next. We're back with our world lead. It is after midnight in Ukraine. It is February 24th in Ukraine, marking two years since Russia began its brutal assault on that country and its people. The reality on the front lines is stark and desperate as Ukraine is running low on supplies and ammunition. Russia is claiming more pockets of Ukrainian territory. Still, Still, the resolve of many Ukrainians is as strong as it gets. CNN's Nick Payton Wall shares now the remarkable story of one fighter whose last two years seems to horrifyingly encompass all the major turning points of the war. If one man's story spanned all two years of Ukraine's war, you might expect it had ended abruptly by now. But Alexander is alive, a glass eye from the siege of Azovstal. Gratitude from surviving Russian prisons, courage from battling in the summer counteroffensive, and now exhaustion from fighting in Kherson in a daring advance across the river that Russia claimed it ended this week. Two years ago, he remembers shock at Russia's brutal attack, but also Ukraine's bold defense. No, 
будто бы специально палки в колеса ставил кто-то. Но наши ребята были готовы. Это одни из сильных ребят, которые я знаю и знал. Serving already four years around Mariupol, he had a friend move his family to Denmark, and slowly his unit fell back to the Azovstal plant, unaware of the iconic battle it would become. What was the worst part of Azovstal? Минуса, это тогда, когда ты смотришь на своих друзей, да, своих пацанов, которые, короче, ранены, да, ты хочешь оказать им помощь, а ты не можешь. Вот это самый минус, потому что медикаментов у нас не было. Уже такие, ну, реально, там просто пацаны гнили. Is there a flashback that is most vivid to you? Некоторые там флешбеки, да, так сказать, всплывают. Но в основном думаю только за своих пацанов. Те, которые, конечно, потерял, вот, те, которые остались живы. Еще даже в плену. 400 colleagues died, 45 taken prisoner, he said. Surrender, the worst feeling. Ну, паническая такое. Ну, не тоже паническая там. Нехорошее чувство было. Чувство бессилия. Особенно, когда у тебя оружие забирают, все, ты как будто бы голый стоишь. На русскую рулетку. Там никто еще не был уверен в чем-то. Six months in prison. The Russian anthem daily, porridge, boiled cabbage, friends dying, and threats of being hung or shot. They ended abruptly. We didn't know that we were going to be released. Then we were sent to the bus and where we were going to be released. We were closed, no one saw us. We were He rested and returned to fight in the bitter and bloody southern counter-offensive near Urojaine. He says he was grateful to feel fear again. Have your experiences left you feeling more courageous or more fearful on the front line now? Это нет, я не железный человек, я тоже боюсь. Это хорошо, когда есть страх. Страх, опять же, таки только надо своим страхом совладевать. Если ты, опять же, таки страх тебя поглотит, все, ты не человек. Жалость это плохая черта характера. Надо просто делать свою работу. We talk in Kherson in his break from assaulting Russian positions across the river, a risky advance Ukraine hoped would edge towards occupied Crimea. It hasn't. Many lives have been lost, and the city of Kherson, liberated now for 15 months, is also an exhausted ghost. And while Western support has slowed, Russia has not. Тяжело получили, не спорю. Но не хочется ее утратить. Опять же таки, да, их хорошо так прозомбировали русских. Просто количеством нас, естественно, получается, люди устают. Будет тяжело, но будем стараться. No end is in sight. He says he does, of course, not want his son to fight in this war. He is seven. Now, as we enter into the third war, it's important to hear voices like that, to kind of answer the question many perhaps hear in the West of why doesn't this war just end? Why isn't there a peaceful negotiation? Well, for many Ukrainians, I'd say the majority of Ukrainians, the notion of Russian occupation is essentially, well, potentially death for those who fought against Russia, certainly the chance of violence or abuse against their families. He sent his family abroad because he'd heard stories of how other Ukrainian soldiers' families uh, had been hurt or repressed 
uh, by Russian occupying forces. This is, for so many Ukrainians, simply an existential matter. And while the sanctions today against 500 targets announced by the Biden administration mark possibly the White House digging deeper into its toolbox to try and find something else to economically hurt the Russians with without denting the, uh, the US economy, here, they need that $60 billion of aid urgently now. Back in December, when it was initially announced as being delayed, there were concerns that would potentially in weeks or months damage Ukraine on the front lines. Well, that time is here now, and there are multiple points across the front line where it is quite clear Ukraine is not doing as well as it wants to be, if not ceding ground to a Russian force now that is well-financed, well-equipped uh, and on the front foot, frankly. And so this third year, uh, an exceptionally complex one for Ukraine and the West, where essentially I, I think NATO has to realise that this is also their fight rather than just Ukraine's on their behalf and that Putin doesn't really himself see an end in sight here. Many analysts believe that really this continuing war is now becoming essential for him to maintain the repressive machine that keeps him in power. So a dark dawn, I think, as many Ukrainians, as you heard there, don't really know where this ends. Jake. All right, Nick Payton Walsh in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Thank you so much. And let's bring in Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh. Uh, Sabrina, good to see you. So your boss, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, he regularly convenes the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. That's dozens of countries coming together to discuss what Ukraine needs defensively. Um, Secretary Austin mentioned in a statement today that multi-country coalition, that coalition has, quote, 15 U.S. allies that as, is a, as a percentage of GDP contribute more to Ukraine's capability needs than the United States does. Do you think that the U.S. is losing credibility among our allies, given U.S. lawmakers on Capitol Hill repeated failure to pass this $60 billion security assistance package for Ukraine? Yeah, thanks, Jake, so much for having me on today. I think certainly the failure of Congress to not give us, to not pass that supplemental package, certainly puts at risk not only our reputation, but our just actions and where we stand with our allies, and certainly, uh, and most importantly, where our adversaries, what they are watching. Uh, it is because of congressional inaction that we've seen Ukraine have to make strategic withdrawals from uh, the city of Avdivka in order to res uh preserve and conserve more resources to continue to hold their defensive lines in the east and the south. So that's why you've seen the secretary uh, both very publicly and privately urge Congress to pass that supplemental that we need so much so that we can deliver Ukraine uh, the military assistance it needs on the battlefield. And we should note it's not just Ukraine suffering. Senior army right. officials tell CNN that they're pulling from their own budget and quote, without a 2024 budget approved by Congress and without additional funding specifically for Ukraine, the command has roughly $3 billion to pay for $5 billion of operations costs, unquote. So how is the Pentagon going to ensure the shortfall does not have a direct effect on U.S. military readiness? Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, right now, the Army, our other services are are in a really tough spot. They're going to have to make critical decisions that impact other programs, possibly pulling from other programs or not participating in other exercises to continuing to support Ukraine and the training that we're doing with their military in some of our uh, facilities all around the world. And so it's incredibly important that Congress hears our message that uh, we need this funding. We need the supplemental past. And as you mentioned, we still don't have an FY24 budget. Right now, we're, we're literally, quite literally, fighting uh, for funding with one arm tied behind our back as we uh, support Ukraine with what it needs on the battlefield while we continue to surge military assistance to Israel. And of course, we're always keeping an eye on our pacing challenge in the Indo-Pacific. 
At the beginning of the war, the U.S. seemed to have a different position on Ukrainian attacks inside Russia. At the beginning of the war, the U.S. did not condone them. Is that still the position of the U.S. to not condone when the U.S. attack, I mean, when the Ukraine attacks inside Russia? Has that stance changed or softened, and, and why? Our position hasn't changed. We still believe this war is confined to Ukraine. Ukraine is right now in the fight of their lives for their own sovereign territory. We don't want to see this conflict expand out farther. Uh, we want to be able to give Ukraine the military equipment, capabilities, and systems it needs to take back its sovereign territory. So, so do you condemn the attacks? If, if Ukraine attacks within Russia, is it the position of the U.S. to condemn that or to condone it? Look, we're always in touch with our Ukrainian counterparts. Actually, just earlier this week, the secretary had a call uh, with his counterpart. Our focus right now is on Ukraine getting the military assistance it needs to take back its sovereign territory. Uh, so that's our, that's our focus. That's our priority. But of course, as you mentioned, we can't do that without a supplemental package. And we haven't been able to provide military assistance to Ukraine since December. Retired U.S. General David Petraeus tells CNN, quote, I'm not sure that either side is winning this war. Is that the Pentagon's view as well? Look, I'll let Ukraine speak to uh, how they characterize this war. We certainly believe that they are making progress. And we're, we're, on the, we're almost at the two-year anniversary. That's tomorrow. Uh, two years ago, we were talking about Kyiv falling within days. Uh, and then the Ukrainians fought very valiantly, were able to hold Kyiv, continue to push on to Kherson, to Kharkiv. And now they're fighting for the Donbass. And they're in the east and the south, holding those defensive lines against Russia. Um, so they have defined success on their own. I'm certainly not going to characterize it for them. But we are, you know, continuing to stand with them. That's what the president has said, that we are in them with them for as long as it takes. We just need Congress's support uh, to continue to get that done. All right. Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jake. This is CNN Breaking News. And we have breaking news for you. Out of New York City, there is a verdict in the civil corruption trial involving longtime top National Rifle Association, or NRA CEO, Wayne LaPierre. A jury has ruled that LaPierre should pay the powerful gun rights group more than $4 million in damages for mismanagement and misspending. CNN's John Miller joins me now. John, walk us through this decision. Well, the jury spent uh, a good deal of time going over this because there were a lot of counts. Now, this is a civil case, not a criminal case. But what they found is that Wayne LaPierre owes the NRA $4.3 million um, on top of a million dollars that they assess he has already paid back. That's the money he conceded that he owed. The jury also found cause to remove him as um, head of the NRA, even though he resigned just before this trial started. The judge will decide whether to permanently bar him from association with the NRA in a bench trial that will come up after this portion of the case. Wayne LaPierre did um, secure for himself a job as a basically an outside advisor or consultant to the NRA, a paid role, which um, which the jury found was not something that made him guilty of self-dealing. But this has been an eye-opening case. Uh, in the closing remarks, the assistant attorney general, Monica Connell, summed it up by saying, this case is about corruption, misuse of funds spent on jets, on black cars, five-star hotels, hundreds of thousands of dollars in suits, million-dollar deals to insiders, payments to, local, to loyal board members, and pervasive violations of internal 
uh, controls. So LaPierre was obviously the key defendant in this civil case brought by the New York State Attorney General because, A, the NRA was founded in New York State 153 years ago as a nonprofit organization, and B, in New York State, the Attorney General has sway over nonprofit organizations in, uh, because of the Attorney General's Charity Bureau. So this was basically the Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, the same Attorney General who bought the civil case against Donald Trump and his business empire, calling the NRA onto the carpet and saying that it's essentially its management had turned the nonprofit organization into a personal piggy bank to use her words. I want to bring in Mike Spies, a, a senior writer with The Trace, which covers gun issues. Mike, uh, your reaction to the verdict? Uh, it's exactly what I expected to happen. Uh, maybe the monetary amount was, was even higher than I, than I thought it would be. But to me, this is uh, also very much a case about greed, about not telling the truth to the people that you're taking money from, and about theater, about putting on a show for 30 years to bring in as much money as possible to enrich yourself and those around you, really, and, at, while, and while doing that, harming the country uh, in the process. What kind of impact do you think uh, this verdict will have on the NRA, both in the short term and the long term? I mean, I think the, the brand is greatly diminished. I mean, even before the verdict came in, the last few years have just been brutal. Members have dropped out. Its entire communications infrastructure has been gone for several years. And I think that it's going to be impossible for it to ever regain the status that it once had. And now what you're going to see is the sort of gun rights movement and the organizations that represent it kind of splinter into a lot of different groups that are going to focus more on lawsuits and overturning regulations and that kind of thing. What kind of role uh, did Wayne LaPierre have in transforming the NRA from what it was once, which was, you know, uh, an organization for hunters and sportsmen into a powerful lobbying organization opposing virtually any kind of limit or control on, on gun ownership, which is, which is what it is today? You know, he was the projection of Oz, you know, while behind the curtain being a, a very timid, fearful man who was playing a role. But that role that he played was transformative, you know, in that he was he was leading like a what I would call a tribal war. He was at the forefront of the culture wars. And it was under his leadership that the organization became a Second Amendment absolutist group was not interested in compromise, wanted to be as divisive as possible in order to perpetually fuel the outrage machine that allowed them to continue to raise more and more money. For what? For, of course, you know, self-enrichment and for bloated contracts and for people to live lifestyles that would be utterly unimaginable to the vast majority of NRA members who have paid their dues. John Miller, final thoughts? Well, the question is, what happens to the NRA? They will be getting $4 million back, but what will their future be? And that is probably going to be a very different NRA, both in their politics and their message. John Miller and Mike Spees, thanks to both of you. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow night for special coverage of the South Carolina primary that starts at 6 p.m. Eastern. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.